If you've uh, got your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab those. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15, finishing off that chapter from last week. Uh, Last week we dealt with an incredibly important teaching of Scripture and that's justification by faith alone, that by faith alone in Jesus, that is how we are saved. It was that moment when Abram believed God and it said that it was counted to him as righteousness. Awesome words, great words that we were learning uh, last week, uh, that every believer is made right with God through their faith in His promises, namely the promises fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. For me personally, Genesis 15 is where I hit that kind of peak of the mountain uh, in Genesis. That's where we get to the kind of the highest point when salvation becomes secure and sure. Uh, We know that Abram was made righteous and pure before him. Uh, And because of how absolutely essential and really breathtaking this teaching is, uh, we're just going to, we had to stop halfway through the story. The story that we're going to keep reading today is actually a continuation from what we learned last week. We kind of had to stop halfway through it. Um, And our passage, it keeps going off where we left off in one big narrative, and we're going to pick up from it right now, uh, from Genesis 15, starting in verse 7. And this is God speaking. And He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each other half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That is our passage. Right off the bat, it's a weird passage. It's a very strange passage. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't have to preach it last week because I probably would have had to spend some time going through it and explaining it, which is what we're setting aside this week to do. And you can come to expect things like this when you read ancient documents like the book of Genesis. We are in a different world. This is a different world when we come to the ancient world. It is not like the modern world. And as, you know, enlightened Western thinkers with our Western sensibilities, of course, we're going to come to things in the Bible that are going to make us a little bit uncomfortable, that are going to make us a little, what is going on here? Like trying to work out what exactly is happening. 
Sometimes the text makes complete sense. When Abram's going off to war, we're like, yep, makes sense. And then a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes through the middle of some cut up animals and we're going, what is going on here? That makes sense. What on earth is going on? Abram has just been told he would have a son. And he is resigned to the fact that children were just not on the cards for him. But now something else is happening. God shows him the night sky and tells him that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars from last week. It says he believed God, he trusted God, it was counted to him as righteousness. We know this. And God says, I will give you this land, the land Abram currently is in. There's a problem with that though, wasn't there? There's other people there. Abram didn't own the land, he was a foreigner. He was a sojourner. You guys might not know what that word sojourner means, but it means like a traveler, uh, a stranger, someone who doesn't belong in that land. And the land was possessed by the Amorites and the Kenites and the Canaanites and Girgashites. I won't list, read the whole list again. There was a lot of people living there. It's a lot of land to go to Abram and his descendants. And we've got an interesting request from Abram. He says in verse 8, O Lord God, how am I going to know that I shall possess this? It just seems a bit out there. Like, how am I going to know that this will be mine and my descendants? How shall I know? Abram wants a sign. He wants a sign from God. He wants some measure of proof to help him understand what is going on. And it's worth noting that the Lord allows this. He allows Abram to freely express his questions and doubts that are in his mind right now. God knows we are weak. He knows that sometimes we need a bit of help. We need a little bit of help in order to just kind of wrap our minds around some things, right? In fact, the more certain that Abram was becoming, that God was going to be true to his word, the more he wanted to dispel and crush any of those concerns and fears that he has. Abram's questioning is not doubtful in, this, in, in, in a sense. What he's doing is he's trying to prove his own faith. He's trying to see his faith shown to be true. He's trying to see his faith uh, proven. And you can tell the difference between someone who wants to understand what the word of God has to say and someone who wants to discredit it and reject it. And Abram, he wants to understand it. He doesn't want to be confused. He wants God to help him get a grasp over it. He wanted his questions answered. He wanted his doubts addressed because he just didn't want them anymore. He didn't want those doubts anymore. The Christian faith, it's not a religion of blind faith. In fact, you don't have to read the Bible for very long to know that that is not the case. It's not blind faith. It doesn't command you to just shut up about your doubts, never question anything, never think about anything, don't think too much. Of course not. Think, read, listen, hear. Humble inquiry is really healthy for faith. Why? Because there are answers. There are real answers out there that will help us become more and more certain of the promises of God. Those who hate God or are indifferent about God, of course, they're not going to ask questions or at least not ask them in a sense that they want them answered. They don't want them answered. They don't want their own weaknesses and doubts and struggles. They don't want them answered. But for the Christian, our weaknesses and doubts and struggles, we don't want them, right? You don't want them in your life. You want to get rid of them. And so you ask those questions because you want answers to them. It's a good thing. It's a good and healthy thing to do. And here is the sign that God is going to give to Abram to help and strengthen his little fledgling faith 
and turn it into uh, something that's more strong. And uh, it's something that's going to make all the vegans in a 50 kilometer radius a bit squeamish, right? It's going to make them feel a bit faint. Verse 9, God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is a bit strange. Now, if you happen to live 3,500 years ago, you'd be like, oh, yeah, of course. The old covenant cutting ceremony. We hear it and we go, what, what is happening? <laughs> Why is he cutting animals in half? Why is he moving them off to the side. For us, Aussies living in a very different context, we've got to put some work in to understand what's happening. We've got to try to understand why these things are occurring. I mean, we like to look at the ancient world and think, man, they're a bit weird. But imagine if we grabbed an ancient person and brought them over here and started showing them some of the weird stuff we do. You'd want to steer them right clear of the 80s, right? Show them one of those 80s workout videos and they'll be like, what is wrong with these people? Like, what are you doing? Well, you don't want to bring them anywhere near TikTok or any of the stuff that people are doing right now, right? In the ancient Near East, it was really simple what's going on here. When a covenant was made, always there was a cutting ceremony. And it worked like this. You would cut some animals in half and you'd create a nice, pleasant path to walk down, right? No, it wasn't pleasant. It was actually supposed to be quite somber and, you know, you're supposed to feel the realness of it, right? Because if you didn't keep your end of the bargain... If you didn't keep that covenant you made with whatever person you're making a covenant with, guess what happens to you? The same thing that happened to those animals. It was a vivid illustration not to mess around. And it makes sense in a lawless world like the ancient world. There was no police that were going to come down and arrest you in the ancient world. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so these covenant ceremonies were a really clear way to let people know that you have to keep this word. And imagine how many contracts wouldn't be broken if we did something like that. People would be like, well, this is some serious business going on here. And so God tells Abram, grab these animals. And Abram obeys. And he takes some very specific animals and he sets them up for this ceremony. God doesn't even have to tell Abram to cut them in half. Abram knows what he's supposed to do. He cuts them in half. The ceremony is ready to happen. And he waits. And then he waits. And he keeps waiting and nothing's happening. And he's waiting so long that birds are now starting to eye off the carcasses and come down. Abram has to keep getting up and chasing them away, getting up, chasing them away. What's going on? Why is God making him wait so long? He waits so long that the sun goes down and he falls asleep, waiting for God to show up. And it says, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Darkness is usually quite a bad thing in the Bible. When darkness is often illustrated as kind of ignorance, being kept, obviously being kept in the dark is an you know, analogy we use all the time. It's not knowing something, being blind, being foolish. Satan is called the prince of darkness. And yet you see this kind of imagery occur in the Old Testament of God being clothed in darkness. In fact, some of the Psalms use that language about God. God seems to show up in the darkness. How? Well, there's one good thing about darkness is that even the faintest, smallest light can seem super bright. 
I know in uh, Calvin's bedroom, he has this little like Himalayan salt lamp thing that we throw like a little um, like swaddle over the top to kind of make it dull, you know, so it's not so bright. But man, in the middle of that night, the thing is just like blinding almost. Even though it's the smallest light, you probably wouldn't even be able to see it if it was on in this room. But when you're in darkness and you're in great darkness, even the smallest flicker of light can seem huge. The darker it is, the brighter the light seems. This idea shows up in Exodus 20, 21, where it says, The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's venturing into the darkness sometimes where you find the light. Let's keep reading verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offsprings will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, God is exceedingly gracious to Abram here. And he's going to shed light on many different things in the midst of this darkness. And he is part of a very exclusive club. Not many people get to see their future. It's very rare that you get to see your own future. Now, if God ever told me my future, I'm like low-key hoping that I will go to my father's in peace. But it's not going to be that way for his descendants, is it? It's not all good news this time. Every time God has been speaking to Abram, it's been good news, hasn't it? But now we're peering into the future and God tells Abram exactly what is going to happen. This great nation, which he is going to make out of Abram, will not inherit the land straight away. It's not going to be instantaneous. It's going to come through hardship and suffering and sorrow. It's going to come through tribulations. They will be sojourners and exiles in a land not their own. They're going to go down to Egypt in a famine and they're going to stay there. They're going to like Egypt. They're going to like what they have down there. And because they stay there and forget the promises that God made to Abram, they're going to find themselves in quite a pickle when a Pharaoh dies and the next one who comes in line doesn't know about them anymore and decides to enslave them. And they're enslaved for 400 years. But the promise to Abram is this. I will be faithful to my end of the covenant no matter what. No matter what happens, even if your descendants are not going to be faithful to it. Even if your descendants are not going to lean into my promises, I will be faithful. God is pledging that no matter what his people do, he will bring about his covenant. He will bring about his promises. God knows it's not going to be instantaneous and he's letting Abram know beforehand what will happen. We also see something else very fascinating in this passage. In the fourth generation, they will return, but not before. Why not? It says here that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, some of you guys might not know what iniquity means. Uh, it's kind of where we get the word inequity from. It's a, a word that means unfair, unjust, immoral behavior. God is allowing the Amorites, by their own choice, to give themselves over to sin in order to bring judgment upon them later. The Amorites are going to forfeit their right to the land by being so morally evil that God would have to expel them. That's what's going on here but not for 400 years. The Bible calls God slow to anger. 
And this is like epic slow to anger. God is going to wait 400 years. He was going to be patient and long-suffering with them for 400 years. 400 years ago, it was the, the Reformation was just starting to break out. Ships were starting to set sail for uh, the new world in the Americas. Australia, at this point, no one had even known, basically, that our continent was there, except for a few kind of obscure explorers and the original uh, inhabitants of this land. 400 years ago was a long time ago. It is a long time. There was a lot happening 400 years ago, but that is a long time. The Amorites were going to become unworthy to occupy the land. They had four centuries to repent. However, the longer that God's patience is ignored, the greater and more severe the judgment when it eventually does fall. This is one of the uncomfortable truths of Scripture, but makes complete sense. Romans 2, 4-5, have a listen to this. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's kindness has a purpose. It's not just because God is a kind God, and He is, but His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It's meant to help us along the way towards repentance. One of the classic things for people who were raised in a Christian home, I wasn't, but you know, this is, uh, I'm just going to imagine what your experience was. You're raised in a Christian home, right? And uh, you know, you hear about sin, you hear about following Jesus, you know you're supposed to follow Jesus, you know you're supposed to follow God, and then there's sin, and some of it looks kind of tempting, it looks kind of fun, you want to do it, and then you go out and you do something silly. And then nothing happens. You're like, oh, I was expecting to get struck down by like a lightning bolt or something. I was expecting something bad to happen to me and then nothing bad happens. And you're thinking, what is going on? Well, you know, your motivation for obeying God is not so that God doesn't strike you down with a lightning bolt when you do something wrong. It was kind of like a really old school way of viewing it. But no, God is patient and He is kind. And the more you step out into that lifestyle... God isn't going to bring the hammer down straight away. I mean, He might. I don't want to say what God can and won't do. But His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. If life has been going well for you, that is God's kindness. And His kindness is supposed to have an effect. And so what's going to happen to Abram in the meantime? Well, he is going to die in peace. Abram gets to see a ripe old age, which is great. He gets to hold his own son in his own hands. He gets to know for certain that God is going to keep his end of the bargain, even if it's going to be a bumpy ride along the way. All of this was shown to Abram beforehand. And here's the sign. We see the sign, verse 17. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is is the second strange part of this passage. During the night, God came and passed alone through the middle of these animals. The covenantal ceremony required both parties to walk down the middle But who walked down that middle? 
was God. Abram did not go through it. Do you know what this means? It means that God takes on the curse of destruction if the promises to Abram are not brought to pass. God makes the most solemn pledge to Abram possible in the ancient world to show Abram for certain that these things will happen. God, in his infinite love and wisdom and mercy to Abram, answers his request for a sign with this amazing display. And we see here a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Very interesting imagery. Very interesting. Why these items? I honestly don't know. This is how I take it. And you can agree with me or disagree with me, but this is how I take it. Darkness had fallen. The sun was down and this imagery of smoke and fire come in. And smoke and fire is actually imagery that shows up multiple times in the Bible. It comes up from, not in every page, but it comes up all throughout the breadth of the Bible, even showing up in the book of Revelation, this imagery of smoke and fire. And when the Israelites come to Mount Sinai, what happens on that mountain? God descends on Mount Sinai in great smoke, and the smoke is like a pillar of smoke coming out of a furnace, going up into the heavens. It's this intense sight with fire in the middle of it. You see this smoke and fire and terrible darkness, and there's flashes of lightning, and God's voice speaks out of the mountain on that day in Mount Sinai, and it's a terrible sight to behold. And I can't help but notice that there are similarities between Mount Sinai and this event right now. The smoking pot uh, fire pot parallels to the smoke coming from the mountain. The flaming torch parallels the fire burning and melting the rocks of that mountain. So what's going on? It's intense imagery. Well, at least if you were showing up to Mount Sinai, that would have been probably one of the most intense things you could ever witness. But for Abram, it's mild. It's muted. It's accessible. These symbols are on a smaller scale for a smaller situation. When Moses and the Israelites stood before God on Mount Sinai, there were millions to witness this. It was a big event for a big crowd. It's terrifying. It's the glory and majesty of God descended on that mountain. It would have been intense. But here only one individual witnesses this sign. Well, I assume only one. It's what we see from the text. Now, I believe that this symbol was deliberate. It was deliberately made to be accessible to Abram. This was a sign for Abram. This was a sign for him to know for certain that God would fulfill his promises. That God, who is infinite, has been gracious in making himself comprehensible and understandable to the finite mind of Abram. In fact, all throughout Genesis, you see God, who is infinite and all-knowing and transcendent and huge and powerful, a super intelligence beyond any imagination, making himself accessible and understandable to finite, small, dust people, right? People made of the dust of this world. Why is this important? It was so Abram knew that God was passing through and making this comforted. That's why he did it. He was passing through the animals. This is the sign that God gave to Abram to show him how radically God was committed to him. In a language he could understand. In a way that he could understand. That's why when we come to the person of Jesus Christ, how is Jesus uh, 
he's signified as the Word of God, John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Word of God. God's communication to us through a man in a language we can understand. How can we even begin to understand the infinite glory and power and wisdom of God? How can we even begin to understand who God is? God is the one who condescends to our level and gives us images and symbols and signs that we can understand. It makes complete sense. God speaks to us so we can understand. He wants us to understand. And yet it's weird for us, Western Christians in Australia, reading this text, it's very different. It's a different world, but accessible to us. The writer of Hebrews reflects on these symbols and the majesty of God on Mount Sinai. And he says this in Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's one thing you take it from this, it's that God is intense. He is serious. He is powerful. He is huge, bigger than you could possibly imagine. Abram saw a glimpse into God through these symbols. Moses went up the mountain in smoke and fire, and there in the midst of the darkness, he saw a tiny glimpse of God's glory pass before him. There were only glimpses. There were symbols, strong, powerful illustrations. And the writer of Hebrews says, God is a consuming fire. Promises made to Abram are valid today. The promises made to him were fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Because it says here that God is a consuming fire and he's terrifying, but he's also loving. He seems like someone you can't even begin to approach and yet he has made himself approachable. He's someone you cannot even begin to understand and he's made himself understandable to us. He's condescended to our level and he's given us and his people, a kingdom that cannot be shaken here in Hebrews. This is how the writer of Hebrews interprets this. This kingdom is sure because it's founded on God. The Israelites would dwell in the land securely. They would come to the promised land. They would receive the promised land. It would be given to them and they would put down their roots and they would establish a kingdom and they would have a king. King David would rule on that throne. All of the promises to Abram would be fulfilled, but the promise pointed beyond that to the ultimate promised land, the place where God is. The Christian sees this strange and intriguing narrative and they see beyond it, they see through it to the promised land, the true promised land, the heavenly promised land. Let's read Hebrews 11, 14 and 16. We're going to finish on this, so really reflect on these words. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they have gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. 
that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The promise that God made to Abram was an eternal one. There is an eternal promised land awaiting all those who rest in this promise. There is a better country, a heavenly country, and that is your true home. That is where you belong. Have you ever walked through just your life and and reflected on things and wondered whether you even belong here? Is this your home? It feels like home, then other times you just want something better. You want something more. That is your heart telling you that we are prepared for a different home, our true home, the city of God, where heaven and earth are made one. This is our great hope for the Christians, that human history will not unravel, it will not die eventually in a great heat death, but God will bring all things together. And the Bible is jam-packed with symbols and references and illustrations. Sometimes it can get a bit confusing, but it's all designed to be accessible and comprehensible. And if you didn't catch anything in my sermon, you didn't catch anything and all that just kind of like washed out of your brain and you're just thinking, what is going on? Listen to this. For those who have faith in the Lord Jesus, there is a place prepared for you, just as there was a place prepared for Abram. By grace, won and purchased by the blood of the Savior. And the promise made here to Abram is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. It points beyond him to Jesus. And it's made accessible to anyone who has faith in him. Anyone. No matter what you've done. No matter how bad your life is. No matter how messed up the things you have done. It is accessible to those who know they are unrighteous and need a righteousness given to them apart from works. Let's pray. Father, your word is so much bigger than we can even begin to see. And the symbols and illustrations and examples that you weave together masterfully through the great breadth and testimony of Scripture speaks so clearly to your divine glory and your eternal wisdom and your power to bring your redemptive will forward in this world. Lord, just like Abram, we struggle and we want to know how we can know for certain that we shall possess this promise given to us in Jesus. And so, Father, please would you cause those people with questions who want these doubts to be ridded of them, to be cast out of them. Lord, help them to be faithful and to want to see these things cast out and to seek out the right people and seek the right answers because, Lord, we know you are true and you have good, perfect and holy reasons for these things. And so, Lord, teach us, give us all wisdom, enlighten our eyes with the truth of your Son, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the amazing witness you gave to Abram and that we get to read about it here thousands of years later in Australia. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.